Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work in some small way. And uh, as you may already know, a uh, reminder, we are remote recording, so um, I'm in my bedroom, and uh, Casey is in a room somewhere with fans, uh, I hope. Um, my AC's turned off for your pleasure. Um, the audio is likely going to sound a little bit different from the studios. Everything else is the same except for our guest today. We've got the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful actor, Rachel True. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Um, for for those of you who just want a refresher on Rachel's career, and maybe this is your life of her life, please <laughs> let me give her an introduction. Rachel is a New York native who grew up to graduate from New York Un- New York University. Is that correct? New York that University. What did you study correct. there? Um, well, you know, uh, the reports of my graduation may may or may not be exaggerated. <laughs> I was there for a couple of years. I uh, studied journalism actually in the very beginning. I was very interested in writing and I still am. Mm -hmm. At that point, I knew I wanted to be an actor, but I thought, no, I need a practical, practical, do something practical. So I studied journalism for a couple of years. And very (laughs) I know, I know. So after NYU, after studying acting, uh, Rachel uh, began auditioning for a television series where she ultimately landed her first kind of big visible roles on uh, the episode, uh, two episodes of The Cosby Show in 1991. (laughs) And it became clear she'd be able to make a viable career on camera. So I believe that's when she picked up and moved to Los Angeles, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about in this episode, too. That's when she made the rounds on all the major shows. We're talking uh, 90210, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Thea, <laughs> Getting By, Dream On, and so many others. You did I had a recurring lot. on Dream On, which I love. That was one of my first gigs out here. And that was an interesting show to me because of the way it was edited. So I was delighted. And also Richard Roundtree played my grandfather on that. And I was just in shock and awe of Shaft the entire time we were shooting. Ah, I love it. <laughs> so, okay, then TV... But then she worked into film because in 1993, Rachel took a different direction and got a role in the cult comedy feature uh, CB4, uh, a classic. After that, she was cast in a few TV movies. But when she appeared in the 1995 film Embrace of the Vampire, it showed her to be a natural (laughs) for horror. So in 1996, she got her breakout role playing Rochelle in The Craft, a story of four frenemy witches who come into power they have no business wielding. Okay, so from there, (laughs) Rachel shined in roles in the films like uh, Nowhere, Half-Baked, The Big Split, New Best Friend, The Perfect Holiday, so, so many more. On television, though, you were seeing her in Once Again, Once and Again, The Drew Carey Show, Half and Half, Being Mary Jane, Better Things, etc., etc. And in 2018, you also saw her as herself in the Shudder documentary Horror Noir, a really wonderful look at the history of Black horror. Um, Oh, thank you for mentioning that, that film because uh, it is such a great sort of dissertation on the parallel between Black people's lives and horror movies and Mm -hmm. and the parallels in between. And it opens with Birth of a Nation, by the Mm -hmm. way. So we're not just talking straight horror. We're talking horror, horror. 
Oh, yeah. And big fan of one of the producers, Ashley Blackwell, who uh, ran Graveyard Shift Sisters for a long time. And she's a she's a we're a big fan of her at the show. Um, coming up, however, Rachel, you have a couple movies waiting for release, including Assault on VA 33. And I know Agnes because I know Mickey Reese. Um, oh, and uh, you what play a small world. <laughs> I know. I, I actually I just wrote a film for him. So you play no a way. nun with secrets in this. And I'm very excited because I've I've actually heard about the cut. And I, I know that you're great. So um, she also has an upcoming True Heart Initiative tarot deck coming out. Oh, in True Heart October Intuitive from- Tarot. And mm-hmm. I, I sent in my bio and spelled that wrong. That's on me. It's True Heart Intuitive Tarot. Yeah, it's a book I wrote and um, sold to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, which is a big major publisher, which I was excited about because it's a niche thing, you know, mm-hmm. and I didn't know if any major publishers would be interested in it. And basically, it is a a tarot book. um, And a lot of people, especially my people, which would be, I mean, I'm mixed uh, half black Jew, but like my people are black and generally tend to say things like, I don't know about tarot, it's the devil. And I'm like, no, 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 it's paper cards (laughs) with images on them from the Bible, I might add. (laughs) Like, you know, Tower of Babel. It's all the same big world of spiritualism, I think. Absolutely. And for me, it is simply a way to get in touch with your higher self, your intuition, using the cards. Or, um, you know, God, if you're super religious, which I am not, but if you are, it's just a way to get in touch with the knowledge inside yourself because your visual, visceral reaction to a card is going to be completely different than mine. And your visceral reaction to a card is going to vary depending on your mood from day to day. So it's basically here. I'm going to give you a little thing. It's basically, I use uh, tarot cards as cognitive therapy in a box, to shrink in a box, to be 100% honest. It is a great way to shrink yourself so you don't drive your partner or your friends insane. Well, I mean, so here's the thing. All the stuff that you're talking about with with tarot and you know spiritualism and and like essentially like a philosophical approach to life that you that you have and that you've shown to have and also the '90s really plays into the movie that you talked that you're selected to talk about today. So, can you tell us about the movie that you talked about or that you chose to talk <laughs> about, which is Orlando? Well, yes. Okay. So I moved to Los Angeles in the early 90s and 92. And this, uh, Sally Potter's Orlando came out in 92 and just holds a super special place in my life. But before I jump into it, I've got to say I really struggled with the movie to pick because I was really torn between Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust, which I am lucky enough to work with Miss Dash, and she's amazing. Daughters of the Dust is a 90s movie. It is beautiful. It is lyrical. It is poetry on screen uh, about the uh, Southern women from Geechee uh, Islands. Um, but I decided to go with Orlando and Sally Potter because I'm a Northern girl, you know? <laughs> My family is Northern. And even when I was a little kid, I was in foster care from zero to and I've been foster care looking at New York Times in the, in the real estate section on Sunday going, did you guys know you could buy an island? Did, did you know you could buy a castle? You could buy a castle, you guys. And, you know, nobody cared. Uh, and then I went to live with my parents um, at, at age four. But I was just always fascinated with history, historical things. Uh, you know, castles <laughs> mm-hmm. and and all of that lore. And maybe that comes from being an East Coast Northern girl, right? Where there's more of a uh, hook into Europe, let's say, than oh, yeah. if you were in Texas. Um, I really think I thought about this, that when I wake up in the morning, you know, when I first wake up and I'm 
becoming conscious and and and, and waking up. I I think first I'm ascension being, right? I'm just a brain or a thing or a consciousness or a soul waking up, and then I kind of feel my womanness, probably because I have giant boobs, but um, I feel my that I am a woman, and then I feel. Uh, what it means to be a black person in America. Like that is, because that's all a part of me, but I don't wake up going, I am black. I do wake up going, I am I am a woman. I am a conscious thing. And that reminded me so much of Orlando <laughs> that mm-hmm. I had to go, because that's part of the theme of Orlando, in a sense, is someone who, who travels through, through time and gender. Uh, and it yes. feels in a very witty, sly way. Um, but for those of you who haven't seen Orlando, today's episode will you, give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Orlando first, this is your shot. And now let me introduce Orlando. Based on a novel by Virginia Woolf and written and directed by Sally Potter for release in 1992, Orlando stars Tilda Swinton as a beautiful young nobleman in Elizabethan England. He is unblemished and proud, and Queen Elizabeth pays him a very special visit that could secure the future for himself and his heirs. She promises him a large tract of land and money with one stipulation. Do not fade. Do not wither. Do not grow old. And you know what? It turns out that's not what's hard. With his land and money, he receives some Cossack guests and falls hard for a beautiful Cossack woman. He he kisses her and tells her they are to be married. He thinks everything is going to be perfect. At which point, she says that it doesn't work like that. You're mine. Why? Because I adore you. Just because he desires her doesn't mean he owns her. Sigh. He loses his love and his backup lady, too. The nobleman Orlando then resides in his castle, lounging about and dabbling in the arts for a couple of centuries, at which point he tries to hang out with a fancy poet. Only the poet is kind of an asshole and doesn't like Orlando's poems. Try as he might, this gracious noble lord who lifts his pen and thinks he then can write, cannot, for who can pen when he is bored? The mind of leisure only can be trite. It sours him on that venture. But a new future comes to him when a gentry requests that Orlando become an ambassador for the throne to the Ottoman Empire in Constantinople. I believe they have an interest in uh, horticulture. I'd like you to bring them some tulips. Which he sees as a mysterious, exotic place. Actually, all the British did at this point. There's not (laughs) much trust between him and the head man of the empire, but eventually Orlando wins his respect and friendship. They get drunk and extol on the virtues of being men. To the manly virtues. Loyalty. Courage. Sometime later, Orlando is called upon by his friend to take up arms and fight for Constantinople. Orlando, our enemies are at the city wall. Will you help? You wish me to take arms? Surely, Orlando, you, an Englishman, are not afraid. He does so and is almost killed, but he refuses to fight. In the end, he doesn't want to take up this duty. 
He wakes up from a long sleep of death and realizes he has become a woman, the Lady Orlando. Same person. No difference at all. Just a different sex. The Lady Orlando returns to her castle and everyone takes her transformation in stride. Issues rise, however, when she is told a woman cannot legally own property. You are legally dead and therefore cannot hold any property whatsoever. Ah. Fine. Two. You are now a female. Which amounts to much the same thing. A man who has admired her for many years when she was still a man says that he desires her and they are to be married. In a mirror of what the Cossack woman said to Orlando, she says it doesn't work that way. I am England and you are mine. I see. On what grounds? That I adore you. And this means that I belong to you? refusing me? I am. I'm sorry. She meets a gentleman and finds that she can be vulnerable with him. And the two make love and she is seen and known perhaps the first time in her very long life. We get, then get snapshots of time passing. Orlando has lived for around four centuries and we catch up with her in the present day when she has a son and is trying to publish a memoir. She is happy and secure and has grown so much over the years, even if she never, ever grew old. That's the end of Orlando. Um, I think another thing I really loved about this film too was the way Orlando lived their life is sort of how I think a lot of artists live like life is art, art is life Mm -hmm. right? so no matter what situation you are in sort of Tilda Swinton's sort of aloof right? watching it, experiencing it yet sitting back and watching it yet still accessible performance was astonishing to me Well, I think that that might have to do with the fact, too, that Sally Potter was very interested in making this character very uh, innocent and almost childlike. And she said, quote, a child before he or she gets very hurt in the world lives very much in the present, approaching each new situation as it is an extraordinary magical event. As we become adult, we forget that. We bring with us our past like a rock on our back. Like, oh yeah, I've seen that before. Not a fresh response. For an individual, when you give up your past, whether it's the accident of class background or your hurt as a child, that was the past, now is the present. People don't have to be determined by their past. That's what I mean. If you're really coming into the present and life is is really beginning. You can learn from the past, but you don't have to bring it with you like a burden. And that's what she was directing Tilda with, was this idea that she was um, a, a burdenless person. She would come into a scene and be like, well, I'm meeting it for the first time. Let's see what happens. Um, right. Which is in that scene where she, she looks in the mirror and I'm paraphrasing, you probably have the exact line, but it's like, she says, uh, it was a Formerly he, now a female, same mm-hmm. person, nothing different, just a different sex. Yeah. As if uh, it is raining today, mm-hmm. you know, just a, a, a fact, not something as in modern society, right? With all the rights things that are going on now, mm-hmm. it would not be approached so innocently. So there was something so super refreshing, I think, in the early 90s when I went and saw this film, because I had not been living in LA for very long. I'm in New Yorker. I'm a diehard New Yorker. I couldn't drive. So I couldn't get anyone to go see Orlando with me. Nobody wanted to. I took the bus 
from Hollywood to the West Side just to see this film. And I remember being just awestruck um, by Tilda because I hadn't seen her. In my memory, I don't think I had seen her in anything before this. I wasn't aware of her, but I no. became resolutely no, aware of Tilda Swinton in 1992. And in fact, I remember all these years later when I saw her in like the beach, I was like, this is fine, but where is the stuff? Where, where are her mm -hmm. roles? So I was not at all surprised to see her take over eventually. No, no, I I have the, the same thoughts too. But it, I mean, you're right that this is the first, even though they had been, um, both Sally Potter and Tilda Swinton had been working for quite a while course, individually. Yes. Um, Tilda Swinton most famously with Derek Jarman in those collaborations. And that's how those two met. Um, it, it When this came to Cannes and it was really well received, um, all of a sudden um, Tilda Swinton became uh, a face, you know. Um, Sally Potter chose her own route, didn't want to be as commercial, but... Um, you know, they, they both became very viable in that sense. And um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I've got a ton of notes on it. And uh, we'll also talk a lot more about Rachel True's uh, career and history as well. We'll be right back. Hey, you like movies? What about coming up with movie ideas over the course of an hour? Because that's what we do every week on Story Break, a writer's room podcast where three Hollywood professionals have an hour to come up with a pitch for a movie or TV show based off of totally zany prompts. Like that time we reimagined Star Wars based on our phone's autocomplete. Luke Skywalker is a family man and it's Star Wars, but it's a good idea. Okay, how about that time we broke the story of a bunch of Disney Channel original movies based solely on the title and the poster? Okay, Sarah Hyland is a 50-foot woman. Let's just go with it, guys. Okay, or the time we finally cracked the Adobe Photoshop feature film. Stamp tool is your Woody, and then the autofill oh, is the new Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> Join us as we have a good time imagining all the movies Hollywood is too cowardly to make. Story Break comes out every Thursday on Maximum Fun. I don't know why I'm using this voice now. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Rachel True, and we are talking about Orlando. Um, so, you know, we were... Uh, talking earlier about um, the look to camera, and you mentioned, you know, its effect on something like Fleabag and the way that it's really grounded. And I'd love to get into how they decided to do that as as their method, um, because, because you would agree that that helps um, shorten up some oh, of the monologues, right? Oh, now God. you don't need someone exposing. Well, uh, you know, we call it um, laying laying pipe in acting. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. now I've got to get to like all the stuff the audience needs to know. I am laying all this exposition dialogue. And yes. they've done away with that in this film. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, for for this movie, it was, um, it, Tilda actually had developed this as a method before she even started working with um, uh, Sally Potter. She said, quote, the very first film I was in, Caravaggio, I remember asking Derek Jarman if I could look into camera because I was negotiating this relationship with the camera at the time. I was not completely comfortable at being watched, so I wanted to make friends with the camera full on. That also went into my performance work doing man-to-man. -man. That's one of the reasons why it was the last piece of theater that I ever did. I loved the relationship with the audience so much that I never that I've never been a great one for the fourth wall ever since. End quote. Um, and interesting. I, I didn't know that quote, and that makes total sense. And that's it's so crazy to me that 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 must have been a delicious relationship between the director and actor, and a lot mm -hmm. of trust that the actor can bring this idea right and 
the, the director take it in and say, okay, let's try it. Yes. And, and I have to say, like, she also said, quote, or this is what Sally Potter was saying. One of the things that Tilda has is an astonishing sense of comic timing. One of the things that characterizes our memories were the enormous reams of uncontrollable laughter that we could have, that we sparked by a particular kind of knowing glance she would give me. When you've been shoulder to shoulder, to shoulder in the process and you've developed codes of understanding and nicknames, minus potato, for example, you go into slightly different areas where even a glance signifies incredible professity. Not even, not just about the project at hand, but all the processes you share. So Tilda ended up reading out loud to me, which is a rare thing, something like 200 successive drafts. And when she could <laughs> smell a turkey, that look would come. So there's a lot of direct looking in the process at different stages. So I think it was there as a seed for the direct address, end quote. And I, I love that where it's just like she started out with Derek Jarman and was breaking the fourth wall. And then through reading 200 successive drafts that Sally Potter had written out loud and kind of giving her her immediate feedback on things, um, then it kind of was born through that process. Have you ever had anything like that where you've gotten to read so, so many drafts of something early on? You know, as an actor, not so much because I'm generally brought in when it's already like, this is the version we're kind of going to gonna work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the luxuries I always loved about film, uh, especially back in the day, film, was you got to ad lib, you know, which is so disrespectful to the writer in the end. But I loved <laughs> as an actor to be able to just ad lib around something and create mm-hmm. your own version of it. But no, as far as filmmaking, I have done that with writing. Um, and that is something, again, I've always been passionate about and didn't know if I'd get the opportunity to do it. And with this book I have, and hopefully I will, I'm working on other writing things and mm-hmm. scripts as well. And it's funny, the quote that you told reminds me of, um, I write with a friend of mine, or on my own, and with a friend of mine, Alec Mappa. And one of the first things I wrote years and years ago, he read out loud for me. And I knew when it was hitting Turkeyville, because his voice would change and he would look, he wouldn't say this sucks, this part sucks. He he would just voice would change and I could tell by the <laughs> vocal change that I hit dead space. So, yes, I mean, as a writer, uh, having something read out loud and by someone else is mm-hmm. super important. Um, but I would love that luxury as an actor or would I be bored to death? I don't know. I think if the script was as fantastical and fabulous as Orlando, I would absolutely love it. If I had to do it around a sitcom, not so much. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I think it it, it just depends. I mean, the actors that we've talked to, so many of them have kind of tried to take control of their careers by either producing or writing because they're tired of maybe being brought in at the end of a process. Well, here's where I want to jump in and say, that's a nice luxury. I would say Mm -hmm. most of my Black counterparts have not had that luxury, to be totally honest. You know, I know mm-hmm. quite when I was coming up, I knew quite a few young 23 year old white girls who had a good deal and got a pretty, but I knew nobody black who had that kind of deal going. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad things are changing now, if that makes any sense, you know, because to bring it back to Orlando, probably why I was drawn to that because I'm a young black actor. I know all I can audition for are, I can't ever audition for the girl in the pretty dress. Mm-hmm. You know, I am auditioning for the, the servant to the girl in the pretty dress, if I'm lucky, but like a movie like Orlando, I don't even know, do they have any black people? You know what I mean? It's a, we, I was, I knew how limited 
space and time was for me simply because of my skin color. Mm-hmm. And I was never resentful of my skin color. It's beautiful. Um, I was resentful of the society. You know, I want to bring up something that, um, that Potter said that um, she was bristling when people were calling this a feminist film and, and she had a, she had a good reason for it. And I, I wanted to bring this up to get your thoughts on it. She said, um, I have come to the conclusion that I can't use that term in my work, not because of disavowal, but because it has become a trigger word that stops people's thinking. You literally see people's eyes glaze over with exhaustion when the word flashes into the conversation. So I never use the term except among intimate friends for whom it has a very different meaning. I also think the word feminism doesn't imply enough in terms of solidarity with other liberation struggles. I'm firmly committed to the notion that no one group can be freed until all are freed. The female struggle implies the black struggle. It implies struggle with anti-Semitism. It implies all the other possible struggles, but I am not interested in making didactic polemic statements with my films, end quote. Um, Well, I love that she had that awareness, you know, in that statement, because especially for me, I'm a Gen X age woman, right? So I'm coming up in New York City at the time of um, uh, feminism and women's movement and tennis. (laughs) Women's tennis was really big in the 70s and the feminist movement, but it was something I, like Orlando, was watching, watching and observing. I've always been a bit of an observer uh, as a kid. I would watch sometimes rather than engage, which is probably why I became an actor. But like Orlando, I'm watching this from the outside because I didn't understand this as a kid, what my outsideness was. I just knew I felt outside it. Now as an adult, I understand it's because I was a very white feminist movement in the seventies. So it makes sense. I felt outside of it. And now by the nineties, that feminist movement, the words had been distorted as they are today to mean something terrible. Like I remember a few years ago, before all this, you know, Me Too and everything came up and women were like, I'm not a feminist, as if it were something terrible, uh, was so assaulting to my Gen X ears, you know, um, because I thought of just being a feminist meant equal rights, right? I just want to get, I want to get paid and valued the same as a man, <laughs> period. Um so seeing this character go through that and um, and also uh, dealing with being a man and then a woman and having her ideas now shot down because she's a woman or her poetry cannot be good or whatever is a lot of what we all experience as women. Yeah, the I, I think um, there's the thing that I that I really love is just a really subtle thing of um, how when he's a man, he's asking that Cossack woman, like, oh, you must marry me. And, um, and she's like, no. <laughs> and then with like, with no trace of irony or anything, then she as a woman says the same thing to this man who's just like, who, who else will have you? And she's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But this also speaks to something too, that I'm curious about, because, um, she, Sally Potter had gotten this advice about, um, you know, having kind of mirrored themes, but never saying anything more than once in a film. She said, quote, quote, I look at cinema as intimately connected to time. It's bound by time, an hour and a half or whatever. In Orlando, everything moves forward in time. It never goes back, even though there are repeated dramatic elements, such as rain falling, a symmetrical echo. I was working on the advice of Michael Powell. You only have to say things once. It's a risky feeling, but I found it exciting. You have to find the one clear way to say something and then let it go forever, end quote. And it's trusting your audience, first mm-hmm. of all, to get and trusting yourself that within this one action that I did, people will get what I'm talking about instead of 
you know, being so obvious because I, listen, I've been stuck at home like a lot of people and I've watched a lot of movies and television mm-hmm. and, you know, there's nothing saves the cat about Orlando. <laughs> there just <laughs> no. isn't. And I'm not knocking, actually. I'm not even going to knock Save the Cat, right? Because there are, that's a formula for script writing. And, and also, you know, it works in the movie Keanu very well. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It works in it works in plenty of movies exceedingly well, Save the yeah. Cat. Uh, it actually comes from, um, I think it comes from Aliens. Uh, it, it's it, like in the beginning of a movie, you see a character, you don't really know if they're bad or good. So you have them do something like Ripley saves the cat in Alien and you know she's a good person. So save the cat is a formula. Anyway, um, there's nothing like that going on in this. And I think that is what's interesting to me because now we have become a very formulaic way of doing things. And mm-hmm. I'm uh, and I'm sort of hoping um, that we move back to almost a 90s uh, aesthetic in film where we do trust our audience is smart enough to catch the idea because film should be expedient. There's, I mean, I, I think also that's, that's something that you're getting into of like being the writer and the director allows for a lot of um, uh, uh, interpretation that that only you can get the reading between the lines that I I think is, um, you know, when you have a kind of Hollywood system set up where someone's writing screenplays for other people to direct, then I think sometimes you can get the right communication and other times there's just like over communication. And um, the subtlety gets lost. mm -hmm. I mean, I think we love, I love about Orlando is the subtlety, right? Mm -hmm. And the wit and all of that. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that gets bludgeoned out of scripts because we want to reach the roots of money. It's all about making money, you know? And when we're talking about an indie film back in the 90s, yes, of course, that's about making money, but definitely a little more art, you know? There was mm-hmm. a little a little more art. What kind of art are we creating? Yeah. Uh, because you know, when you think about the 90s, the beginning of Sundance, all that, like art, art houses, art films. That's why when I moved to LA, I could not understand. I kept saying, where is the center where's the downtown with the art house and the coffee shops and yep. there weren't any it was strip malls yeah and if you were uh, in the know you knew about like la rebellion and all those folks who were coming out of that but like if sure you, if you weren't around like it's like oh well you had to graduate from ucla um we're gonna take another quick break uh when we come back uh well first off i want to say that both rachel true and i do enjoy money um and then <laughs> secondly we're gonna take a quick break we'll be I right do. back to talk more orlando <laughs> All right, Adam, uh, Maximum Fun wants us to record like a promo to tell people that they should listen to The Greatest Generation. You want to do that? No, I am tired of all the extra work. I just wanted to talk about Star Trek with my friend. I, I think it, it would be good to like try and get some new listeners by appealing to the audiences of other shows. Like this, this will only take a minute or two. It could be good for us. We sit down for an hour every week and talk about a Star Trek episode and make a bunch of idiotic fart jokes about it. It's embarrassing. If it got out that we made this show, I think it would make us unemployable. Adam... I- I have bad news for you. We have tens of thousands of listeners at MaximumFun.org. Oh, my God. I think I'm going to throw up. The Greatest Generation, a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. Every Monday on MaximumFun.org. I'm really going to be sick. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Rachel True, and we're talking Orlando. Um, you know, something that you had said earlier kind of caught my attention, and that is um, how you were talking about going into a room and people kind of only seeing you as one thing. We're just like, okay, well, here's a black woman. Like, here's a young black woman. Here's a young black girl. And and I'm 
think a lot of actors are always fighting against that kind of first impression that people get and like what they think they can um, play in those roles. But of course, if you're a person of color, I think it's an even smaller box that you're put in. And, um, and I think with Tilda Swinton in this movie, they did a lot of um, experimentation early on to convince people, especially the money people, that she could play both a man and a woman, and then it wouldn't be just a big fucking joke. Um, Tilda Swinton said, you know, early on, she said, quote, we realized we had an idea of how I might look. That's all we had. We hired a couple of costumes, a female and a male costume, and we did a photo shoot and we took it to Cannes. And all the while having a real laugh and building up enormous debts. We didn't know what we were doing, but we were still interested and we were being fed by the idea of this book. So we kept building on this very simple thing, the look and my look, end quote. And so like before anything, before they even had a script, they did a photo shoot with Tilda Swinton in these costumes and said, like, she could do this. Like, here is well, the person. The thing is, people, again, need to realize is the money people in film are exactly that. Many people, they graduated from Wharton, not USC film. You know, they are business people. So, yeah. I, and sometimes I think they're frustrated artists, but that's another story. Um, but yes, I think sometimes they need a visual. They need to see this person in this costume and then they go, oh, okay. But unless you show that visual in that thing, there is no okay. That is how it rolls. Like even again in the 90s, I'll round it a little to my own career with like the craft. And I've told this before, but that was for white girls, hands down. And, you know, I had to really... <laughs> fight to get an audition for it. Um, and, you know, even then it was a struggle. It was a struggle to get these people to see, I could do this. I, I, I speak the same patois as your white girls, you know? Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. And in fact, when I moved to LA, it was so bludgeoned into me that I had to learn uh, a hood accent um, because I was only going up on just hood stuff. I remember I went and auditioned for... Um, uh, uh, clueless and I was like I'm going to CPK and they were like no and I was like oh fuck I, I have to switch back to me oh, no. Rachel True <laughs> I was so confused and I like kind of blew that that wasn't my part anyway but I blew that audition because I couldn't I think I just come from a hood girl audition you yeah. know when I was sort of ripe for that kind of thing you know I wanted people to know there were middle class people black people roaming around who were not the Cosbys um mm -hmm. Uh, meaning their parents were doctor rich people that are ostensibly rich. Uh, they were middle class, you know, working yeah. class, whatever, um, who, who spoke the same because we all grew up the same. So I know with the craft, when, when I fought my way in there, the character was originally bulimic. And then they switched it up uh, once they hired me and added in the racism thing, which I think is stronger, to be honest, because yeah. when I think about that character and the racism she put up with, like, I'm still dealing with it today. In fact, more so today than I was then because I was young enough to have my blinders on then and go, none of that matters. So what? Mm -hmm. So what? I can't get read for this or so what? Or so what? I get paid half as much or a quarter of as much as the other actors on this film for the mm -hmm. same job. So what? Oh, I'm just now... I understand how people become angry black ladies. <laughs> That's what I can say. I do. <laughs> because now I'm cranky yeah. about it. Now I'm like, fuck off. Stop yeah. offering me a quarter of what everyone else gets paid for the same bullshit. 
yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So try to walk that line between not becoming too bitter and crabby <laughs> as I get older. Um, yeah. and, but, but still voicing tricky. it. But still, right, still voicing it. And I've been very vocal about that kind of stuff online. And I'm never not surprised by the people who don't understand necessarily what I'm talking about. Like I've had fellow actors say, well, you're not invited to that signing convention because you're not as famous as the other girls. And it's like, fuck you. Famous to who? Like, what are you talking about? Like, what? They're talking about the other actors. <laughs> I know, I mean, but listen, like, was some there... of my cast, some of my own cast thinks this. And I'm like, it's not about that as these things, at these things. Trust me. It's not about who's famous or the 12th Jason from 1984 wouldn't be at that table over there. Yeah. It is simply about who is in the movie. And when I come to these conventions and there's no one black here, this is what I'm fighting for. And again, I'm pretty vocal about this stuff online. And it's not just completely self-serving. Like when I mouth off about give me billing for the craft, if you're going to put a picture of the four of us up, it is for me, but it is also for the future generations. Because when I was a kid and I would see a movie and it was like the black person who didn't mm-hmm. have a name and never had a credit. And we then never became a known actor or marginally known because we never talked about them and we didn't credit them. Or, for example, in a, in a textbook, if I, as a kid, growing up, you see a picture of a dancing woman. That's what the statue is called, dancing woman. Let me tell you something. Back in history, that woman had a name. She had a name at a certain point, and history lost that name I'm in, in the way to, you know, uh, devaluing women. Uh, so I'm fighting for this because I know that there's a young actress who's in her 20s right now. It's going to go through the same thing I did when I was younger, and... She's going to end up, and if I fight for the billing now, maybe she won't have to be excluded from the press that would help her become more known, like I, like I was. So I want to get back into the acting performance and, and how you've been directed in your career, because, you know, like you've, you've worked with a lot of different directors. And I want to talk about Sally Potter and her way of approaching um, directing actors in this film, because it is extremely philosophical. And I can't imagine that it works for every actor, but I'm, I'm curious how it resonates with you. She said, quote, and this is like uh, talking about directing the lovemaking scene after um, Orlando has become uh, a woman. She says, quote, for Orlando, it is like looking into a mirror of a possible future. The real question is not only whether she is a woman meeting a man, or a man meeting a man, it is also about the meeting of ideologies, England's feeling of destiny arising out of its past, America's through free will of a dream of its future, and in their embrace is the bittersweet theme of possession. But behind these layers of implication is the simple question, what is love? It is two members of the human race meeting each other. That is how the scene was directed, through the eyes, end quote. So basically she's saying like, the question was just like, how did you direct that scene? And then Sally Potter's answer is just like, I told them a bunch (laughs) of philosophical things <laughs> said through the <laughs> eyes <laughs> I was like what <laughs> I kind of get that for a love scene though I mean because like a love scene is a love scene is a love scene when you're shooting it you know yeah, yeah. so I sort of understand that philosophical approach to that sort of thing um yeah. but no that wouldn't work I mean for every actor at every time I've had certain directors who are philosophical like that and hands off I feel like Julie Dash is a little philosophical, speaking of Daughters of the Dust. Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, again, when I worked on a sitcom, and literally it was so crazy because the director would say, okay, now indicate the door. Oh, my God, as an actor, like, you die inside because you were taught never to indicate. Indicate <laughs> means being obvious, and instead of showing it with your eyes or words, you're literally going, the door! <laughs> um, so it was... <laughs> 
you know, a challenge for me to adapt. I, you know how I thought of sitcom work, Comedia dell'arte. I went, it's just, it's just comedy, but yeah. big, you know, and, yeah. and because it is an art form to itself. And I actually really enjoy sitcom acting, to be honest. Once I understood it, once I was like, don't freak out that you're breaking every rule you were taught. Yeah. In acting class. Um, so, you know, everybody's style is different. I know with um, Andy Fleming on the craft, he didn't do that. He directed for sure. But like, I remember his direction the night before the test was, Rachel, just don't drool and you'll get the part. And I was like, ah, how do I not drool tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> now you're making me want to drool. I can't stop. Yeah. I mean, and basically he was saying, dude, just do your thing. Actually, Andy gave me great direction. He said, he said, Rachel, you're, you're a little like me, meaning him insofar as you don't actually need to act that much. It's all right there. So stop trying to layer, mm -hmm. just be truthful. <laughs> I was like, Oh yeah, that's true. Just listen, mm -hmm. <laughs> just be truthful, listen and receive, you know, instead of most of us new actors, when we're new, we sit there, we're anticipating our line. I speak now. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I was very grateful for his, um, you know, for, for, for his direction, because what he was saying was that you're telling the story on your face, you know, uh, you don't need to do all this other acting, um, you know, like, like one would on a soap opera, I suppose. Uh, see, I mean, the, that's the like the difference too. I mean, like something you're talking about, like the difference just in general between like TV and film. Um, I mean, just the idea that a director would get the time to kind of get to know their actor. Um, the, Sally Potter has a great quote with that because she is very actor focused, and in fact, she is she is an actor herself. Was in um, I think the movie's called The Tingle Lesson, if I can remember correctly. So she's like very empathetic with actors, um, but she really works with each one individually before um, they even get on set. She said, quote, I absolutely love working with performance of all kinds. I mean, love it. The relationship and force field of attention you can give to people and watch them build something. I mean, these people are at the top of their tree. They're wonderful. And it's not like you've got to sort of help them along or something, but you can create conditions in which they can go to places that maybe they haven't been before. And it's all about building a relationship and a kind of trust so that people can surrender to the process. And I do that one on one. So I work, first of all, individually with people before they even meet each other, end quote. What a luxury. First of all, this sounds like fantasy land to me because it's such don't... a luxurious process to be able to work with a director. One -on You've already booked the part, so the stress is off. You're not like, oh, my, 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 I don't know what's happening. No, you're, you're booked it, and now you have the time and luxury of getting inside the director's brain and their vision. That rarely happens. Honestly, you're lucky if you get one read through and, and a rehearsal and a half. You know, mm -hmm. some films, so indie films, so we do rehearse more. I remember like with Greg Araki, we rehearsed that, uh, those scenes. And then we shot it in like a day and a half, but we rehearsed. Well, you know, indie filmmakers definitely big on rehearsing because you don't have much time on set for sure. That That's right. That's the difference. Whereas like in a studio film, you know, you would shoot two pages a day of a script, two pages, a page and a half. But on an indie film, you're shooting eight to 10 pages. So in a layman's speak, you were doing a lot more work. There's a lot more setups, a lot more stuff. Time moves more fast. And in a studio film, you have a little more luxury to explore those moments. But that's always what drew me to film. Like the first thing I ever did was a film, CB4, which was a Chris Rock film. Is that actually what moved me out here to Los Angeles? I booked the film and shot here, so I moved to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And um, I, what I lo love about film, not, not even necessarily CB4, but film is that it's broken up into beats. The way you shoot a film is each little tiny beat so if you've had the luxury of working with the director, 
you know, and you've gone over each the scenes you're going to shoot and you understand what each beat is about. You really get to make the most of that with just a look, right? We're not talking mm -hmm. about chewing up the scenery, but with just a look or a gesture or the what you infuse on that dialogue. Um, yeah. I would love the luxury of, you know, workshopping something with a director for weeks before you really get in there. Because, for instance, I loved working on Agnes, but we shot um, the end scene first, our very first scene up was the last scene that I would be in in the movie. And so, of course, by the time we shot the film, I was like, oh, fuck, I would have played that different. Oh, I mean, <laughs> A yeah, little I mean, different, you know what I mean? But that, yeah. I don't know. What can I do now? It's just, it's what happened. It's also, it's a bummer. I mean, sometimes we talk on the show sometimes about the movies that have the luxury of shooting in sequential order. And wow. Oh, my God. Better Things, the TV show, is shot yeah. in sequential order. That is the joy Pam Adlon has created the most beautiful sandbox for herself, but for actors to play in. And then shooting the episode I did in chronological order, of course, it just built to a beautiful place. She's also a rarity on television because she uh, will let you ad lib. In fact, wants you to ad lib around the scenes. Like she'll do a scene with the dialogue written and then you'll do takes with it ad libbing. And that's what quite often what ends up in the show. And another technique she had that I thought as a director was beautiful is we'd be sitting around, you know, the whole crew's ready to shoot and we're just talking, we're talking about whatever. And then she'll bring up the topic, like whatever, you know, the scene is about. And then she'll go, okay, now we're going to roll into this. Okay, cameras go. Okay, anyway. And she's very quiet about it. Okay, now go into the dialogue. It is so organic, I could cry. It was a beautiful experience. That's a that's a lovely way for us to wrap it all up for today. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your passion for Orlando, which is a wonderful movie and a wonderful choice. And I want to remind people that your book and your tarot card set, they're, um, uh, they're available in uh, October, but you can also go to Amazon right now and check them out and maybe You can pre-order it on the Amazon. I would so appreciate it if you did. Um, um, yeah, because it was a labor of love. You know, I'm really proud of my work on that book. Um, and I love the idea of something that is helps me, I think, be a calmer, better person, maybe can help other people. Yes. And uh, keep an eye out for Agnes and Assault on VA33. Uh, everything, you know, was in, in flux, I'm sure, with the <laughs> pandemic. But keep an eye out for them. Rachel's working and she's working for you. And thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was so nice to talk about film. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you would like to tell us what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. To the manly virtues. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.